Um, and I'm going to be starting off this series by talking about depression. That's our topic today. Um, and I'm actually going to be doing this in two parts. The, the first part is going to be kind of looking at some of the causes of depression and what can get us into this cave. Uh, and next week, we're going to be focusing on some of the, the ways we can get out of depression. So it's going to be a, a two-part message on this topic. Um, and before I go any further, I just want to start off with a few disclaimers. Um, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a counsellor, I'm not a secular specialist in, in depression. Um, I'm a pastor, and so I'm going to be approaching this from a spiritual angle, looking at what God's word would have to say about this. Um, I'm also someone that's lived with depression. I've experienced depression. It's something that I've had a long journey with. Uh, I've researched it at length, looking at what both spiritual leaders and secular leaders would say about this, so that's going to be informing uh, my teaching this morning. I also want to say depression is a very complex topic. It's multifaceted, it's multi-layered, there's different paths to wellness. Um, and so I just want you to hold that in mind. I'm speaking for two weeks about it, and I believe these sermons are going to be life-giving and they're going to be helpful, but they're not going to be exhaustive. So just bear that in mind as we go through uh, this topic. I'd just like to start this morning uh, by praying, so if you just bow your heads with me. Lord, I thank you that when you walked the earth, you, same, you said that I came to give life and life in abundance. Lord, it is your heart to lead each person in this room in the path of life, into wholeness and into health. Uh, and so, Father, would today be another step in that direction? In Jesus' name, amen. So let's talk about depression. The causes of depression and the people's journey with depression and experience of depression can be different for different people. Um, so bear that in mind as I share a bit about my story. But my journey with depression started at the age of 21. Um, up until that point, I didn't really have a, have a reference point for depression. I'd hear the word and I just couldn't connect with it. I couldn't understand what it would be like to be depressed. I'd had a really good upbringing. I'd had lots of friends growing up. I had great years at high school. I was into lots of activities. Um, I was an aspiring sports person and at the age of 21, I had a really bad back injury that stopped me playing sport and that was kind of the first blow. It was something that uh, a lot of my identity was built around. It was something that gave my life a lot of meaning and when that was taken away, that was quite a big blow but after that, things would start to spiral out of control. Um, that injury would develop into a chronic pain problem um, and I'd find myself not able to work, isolated from friends, um, in pain from the moment I'd wake up to the moment I went to bed, not able to do a lot of the things that have given my life meaning, and I found myself really depressed. I was suicidal, I didn't want to live anymore, and I had years that were marked by heaviness and depression. And since that time, at the age of 21, I've been on a journey with depression. As I said earlier, Jesus leads us in the way of life, and he's been leading me into that path. But for me, it's been a process. It hasn't been a quick fix. And if I'm completely honest with you this morning, this is something I still have to be mindful of. I've put measures in my life. I've built my life around certain things to keep my mind healthy because I recognize that perhaps I can be vulnerable in this area. And I want to say, regardless of where you're at with your mental health, whether you've experienced deep, heavy clinical depression, 
whether you've lived with a mild depression, whether you don't have any reference point for it at all, if we want to walk in the wholeness and the life that Jesus has for us, we all need to build our lives on God's truth. And we all need to follow the lifestyle and example of Jesus. Because if you look at the culture around us, it's becoming increasingly marked by mental unwellness. It's becoming increasingly marked by stress, by depression, by anxiety, by compulsion. And so if we aren't living a different life, if our lives aren't rooted in different truths, if we're not pursuing a different way of life, we're likely going to be a product of the culture around us, which is mental unwellness. The good news is, is that God wants you whole. I want to say that again. God wants you whole. He wants to lead you in the way of life. He doesn't want you to be marked by anxiety and depression. In fact, he wants you to be marked by joy and peace. And saying that, I want to let you know that if you're struggling with depression or anxiety, that's okay. Often in Christian circles, there can be a connotation that we have to have it all together that we have to have soundness of mind all the time, that we have to be on top of our game. And if we're not, it can carry with it a connotation of shame, feeling less than, finding it hard to share with others. And that's something I've personally experienced to a degree. Um, But I want to say, as the leader of this church, that's not the culture we want for our church. We want an authentic community. We recognize that we're all on a journey. We're all saved by grace. None of us are the finished product. We've all got rough parts that are being smoothed out. And we need to be able to talk about things authentically as they are. We need to wrestle with the fact that heaven's broken in and it's changed us and we've got the spirit in us, but, we've, but we're still becoming and growing into that spirit, into that newness. It's okay to be on a journey. But equally, I want to be clear that God doesn't want to leave you where you're at. It's okay to share and acknowledge and process But God wants to transform you. He's got good plans for you. He wants to lead you into the way of life. So we need to hold those two things hand in hand. If you look through the Bible, the different characters often had big journeys with their mental health. King David struggled with depression. Read the Psalms. Read the rawness. Read the emotions. Read the petitions. Read the realness of his life. Jeremiah struggled with depression. Job was struggled with grief and depression after loss. And even in the New Testament, the apostle of grace, the apostle Paul, the great man of faith, he struggled with despair at points in his life. I'm going to read with you a passage uh, from his second letter to the Corinthian church. This is what he says. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Paul and his entourage were under great pressure. They despaired of life itself. Indeed, we, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. Our struggle is meant to point us to God. It's meant to point us to the source of life. It's meant to point us to his grace. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again, and he will deliver you. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Paul's encouraging us in this passage that there can be a silver lining to pain and despair. If pain and despair and brokenness points us to God and gets us to find reliance and faith and healing and trust in him, it has a silver lining. 
He also says earlier in this that as we learn to find comfort from God, we can begin to pass that on to others. You know, God wants to redeem your pain. God wants to redeem your tears. He wants to redeem your heartache. He wants to use that so that you can minister and bring hope to the lives of others. So what can we learn from the Bible about depression? We're going to be studying a story in the Old Testament surrounding the prophet Elijah and letting the the word of God guide us in this. So the text we're going to be looking at, if you're wanting to follow along, it's 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1 to 4. Uh, But before we get to that passage, the context that surrounds this is, it's really important. So just the chapter earlier from this passage, the prophet Elijah has been involved with uh, the Lord working miraculously in two separate occasions. He's had this standoff with the false prophets of Baal, 450 of them, they're up on Mount Carmel, and uh, they're looking to prove who is the true God. And these prophets of Baal are petitioning to Baal for for the entire day, asking him to bring down fire to prove that Baal is the true God. They have no luck. And Elijah comes and he calls down fire from heaven, and the fire of God comes and, and burns up this entire sacrifice. And on the back of that, these evil prophets are put to the sword. It's this amazing mountaintop moment. It's some of the, the best preaching content we can have in here with God's hand at power and good conquering evil. And, and then after that, he goes and he prays to God. And, and God he prays for rain. And God comes in and ends a three and a half year drought. And, and it's like this miraculous moment. It says after this, the spirit comes on him. And he runs ahead of the evil king Ahab to to Bathsheba, and this is where we enter uh, this part of the text. So I'm reading from chapter 19, it says, Now Ahab, so that's the, the evil king of Israel at this time, told Jezebel, his wife, everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. She sends him a threat. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Now this is just after he's had these mountaintop moments of defeating these 450 false prophets and praying for rain. He ran for his life. Uh, When he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there. Well, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, which is like a low shrub, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. What a contrast. He's just been the hero of Israel, the man, and, and one chapter later, he is wanting to die. He doesn't want to go on anymore. I have had enough, Lord. Has anyone ever prayed that prayer? He said, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. I have had enough. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. You know, isn't this an amazing passage? Isn't it amazing that this man of God, perhaps the most famous uh, prophet in the Old Testament, someone that stood at the transfiguration of Jesus, someone that was used miraculously, one chapter later is in a dark hole of depression, wanting out. And what triggered this was a threat from Jezebel. It would be the modern-day equivalent of someone sending you an email or sending you a Facebook message or posting on your wall. And this pushed him over the edge, and he finds himself scared, wanting to die, and in despair. Now, how did he get here? 
How did he get here? What happened? How did he arrive at this place? We're going to spend some time unpacking this passage and talking about five of the causes we can draw out of this passage that lead us into this dark cave of depression. So for your notes, the first thing we learn from this passage that can lead to depression is a lifestyle imbalance. A lifestyle imbalance. For me, I don't think it's any coincidence that Elijah's depression came immediately after a period of intense ministry. It came immediately after him having this massive standoff with these prophets. It came immediately after him petitioning for rain. It came immediately after him running ahead in the spirit. It came immediately after all of this ministry. He must have been fatigued. He was probably stressed and his depression entered in this moment of fatigue. What this teaches us is that a lot of our depression and anxiety, it's lifestyle related. You know, one of the best books I've read on depression is a book called Lost Connections by Johan Hari. He's an investigative journalist and he studied depression. And what he found was that in most cases, in fact, he would say the majority of cases, depression is not the result of a chemical imbalance, it's the result of a lifestyle imbalance. And his premise is that depression is actually a signal telling us, hey, something's not right in your life. It's something that is signaling that there's a connection that's been lost, that something needs to be adjusted. You know, and if we're honest, I think one of the major reasons that, one of the major things that's off in our lives is we're trying to do too much. Stephen Lardy, the author of The Depression Cure, says this, we were never designed for the sedentary, indoor, socially isolated, fast food laden, sleep deprived, frenzied pace of modern life. You know, our lives are often out of balance. And depression is actually a signal saying, hey, readjust your life. Hey, something needs attention. The depression is trying to actually tell you to change something. How balanced is your life? How balanced is your life? Are you getting exercise? Are you getting sleep? Are you having joy in your life? Have you got times with God? Have you got meaningful relationships with your friends? Is your life balanced? You know, if our mental health isn't great, perhaps the first thing to do is to step back and say, hey, what might this be telling me about the way I'm living my life? Ecclesiastes 4.6 says this, Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. He's saying better less with peace of mind and heart than more with stress and toil and heartache. Better less than more. I think so much of the time we fall into, uh, into depression and poor mental health, it's because we're wanting more. We're wanting more money. We're wanting more growth in our business. We're wanting more possessions. We're wanting uh, more of a status in our workplace. We're wanting more social experiences. We're wanting more followers. We're wanting more opportunities. And it comes with a cost. The wisdom of the scripture would say, hey, it's better to have less and have peace than have more and be stressed and chasing after the wind. You know, let's examine our lifestyles and say, hey, what might I need to strip back? Is my lifestyle balanced? The second thing for your notes that can lead to depression that we learn from this passage is isolation and loneliness. 
It says in the passage that when Elijah arrived in Bathsheba, that he left his servant there and he went by himself into the wilderness. He left his servant in Bathsheba and he went and isolated himself in the wilderness. You know, if you've been depressed, you'll know that the tendency is to want to isolate yourself. It's to want to withdraw. It's to want to draw back. It's to want to want to not be around people. It's the tendency. It's what I typically do when I'm not feeling well. But we, this is the exact time you need to be in community. This is the exact time you need to share what's going on. This is the exact time you need people praying for you. This is the exact time you need people sharing the load. You know, we are not designed to live in isolation. We're not. If you look at the scripture, the first problem of this good world that God created, it's not sin, it's humanity being alone. This is what, what it says in Genesis 2. It says, the Lord God said, it is not good. Say, not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. You know, it's not good for us to be alone. Sometimes we try to convince ourselves, I just need to be alone. I just need to withdraw. I just need to take some time. It's not good to be alone. Times of solitude, okay, but it's not good to isolate yourself. You need your community. You need to share. You need to share the load. You need people praying for you. Hebrews 10.24, I see a bit of laughter. Is that at the helper um, The helper in that? <laughs> I did look at a different translation, but they all said help us, so you're just going to have to deal with that's in the Word of God. Um, <laughs> anyway, actually, to qualify that, helper is different in the Hebrew, if you want to do a word study. Um, Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says this, And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. You know, don't give up meeting together. Don't give up having people in your life. We need encouragement. We need help. We need prayer. We need people to share the load. So if you are feeling low, tell someone. It's often the first step to health is just saying, hey, I'm not actually doing too well. You know, it will take the load off your chest. It said that a problem shared is a problem halved. Let's not isolate ourselves. The third thing that can lead to depression that we learn from this passage is comparison. You know, in this passage, almost out of the blue, it's, it's almost like it came from nowhere, Elijah says, take my life, Lord, I am no better than my ancestors. Take my life, Lord, I am no better than my ancestors. Where did that come from? That's telling us that he's almost got the weight of the world on his shoulders trying to live up to those who've gone before. I'm not better than them. I'm not measuring up to them. I was supposed to do more than them. Take my life. I have missed the mark. I'm no better than anyone that went before me. He's comparing himself, and it's leading him down the path of depression. You know, in our world, we live in a culture of comparison. You know, if we go through Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat... We're looking at people's highlight reels, the top moments in their life, their curtailed lives, and it's a false reality. But if we're not careful, we can begin to start comparing ourselves to others. We can say, why don't I have so many friends? Everyone seems to be out there doing great things and I don't have much to do. Everyone's life looks better than mine. Why don't I have this thing? Why don't I have that thing? And if we're not careful, it will steal our joy and it can lead us down a dark path. Theodore Roosevelt, the former U.S. president, said this, comparison is the thief of joy. 
Comparison is the thief of joy. If you want to be miserable, just compare yourself to others. If you want to lose your joy, start comparing yourself to others. If you want to have joy, be thankful for what you've got. Focus on your own life and stay in your own lane and you'll be joyful. Galatians 6, 4 to 5 says this, Each one should test their own, say their own, their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else for each one should carry their own load. He's saying stay focused on your own life. Stay focused for what's ahead of you. Be thankful for what you've got. Stay in the present. Be present to people around you. Don't compare yourself to others. Have you fallen into the trap of comparison? A good question to ask yourself is how might social media be affecting me in this regard? You know, for me personally, I don't have Instagram. I've got Facebook and I use it mainly as a communication tool. Um, And I've thought about getting Instagram. I don't have anything against it. It's great to share content and it's great to uh, stay in tune with people's lives. But for me at this point, I actually want to stay focused on my own life. I want to be thankful for what I'm doing in my own life. I don't want to be looking at what other people are doing constantly. I want to stay in my lane and be present to the people around me. Because I know for me personally, for my soul, if I'm spending a lot of time looking at what everyone else is doing constantly, it's not good for my soul. It might be different for you. You might have a healthy balance and that's cool. But I'm saying it's one thing to think about how might social media, how might looking at what everyone else is doing, how might that be affecting my soul? And maybe you might need to make some adjustments. Is this all good this morning? The fourth thing that can lead to depression that we learn from this passage is rumination. Now, a little bit later in this chapter, two separate times, Elijah says the following thing to God. He says this to God. I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Basically, he's telling God, I've done all this amazing stuff for you. I've been following you. Everyone else has forsaken you. Where are you? I'm the only one left. That's what's going through his mind. That's what's churning over in his soul. He says it twice to God, and the reality is that's a lie. Elijah has talked himself into believing a lie. In fact, he knows it's a lie, but he's talked himself into believing it. He's been ruminating on the wrong thing, and he's been creating a narrative in his head about what's happening that actually isn't rooted in reality. The American Psychiatric Association defines rumination as this. Rumination involves repetitive thinking or dwelling on negative feelings and distresses and their causes and consequences. So rumination is basically taking your distress and thinking about it repetitively and stewing on it and trying to solve it and repetitively going over and over and over again. A good example is like a cow. When a cow eats its food, it chews its food, it processes it, and then it puts it down into a stomach, and then it pulls it back up again. And it chews it, and it processes it, and it chews it, and then it puts it back down, and it pulls it back up. That's the same thing as meditation. It's okay to process things. It's healthy to process things. But when we get in the habit of putting it down, bringing it back up, focusing on it, putting it back down, it's in this this, um, cycle of negative thinking, it's going to destroy our souls. 
You know, and for me, this is something that I've really wrestled with over the years, struggling to switch off my mind, almost thinking that the longer I think about something, the better it's going to get. I want to tell you, once, actually research would say, once you've been thinking about something for over seven minutes, it starts to go downhill after that. That's a scientific fact. You know, you're not going to start solving that problem if you think about it 10 hours a day. You know, think about it, park it, and leave it for another time. Maybe you've experienced this in your life. Maybe for you it's work, and you just can't get work off your mind, and you're stressing about going to work, or you're stressing about conflict in the workplace, you're stressing about your boss or not feeling adequate, and it's just churning around and around and around. You know, maybe for you it's financial struggles, and it's like the economy and the thought of how am I going to provide and what about if my rent goes up and I've got to refix my mortgage and it's just going around and around and around and around and you can't put it down. Maybe it's your kids. And you're like, I'm trying to bring up kids in this crazy world and I don't feel like I can protect them and it's just the source of anxiety. You know, maybe you've experienced that. You know, we sometimes can think, as I said, like, we can think that the more we think about it, the better it gets. But God actually wants us to identify those negative thoughts. He wants us to identify those lies. He wants us to catch them and bring them into subjection to what his word would say. You know, basically, we're told by scripture to catch lies and negativity and replace them with the truth of God's word. To bring them into obedience is what the scripture would say. You know, how does this look? When we're stressed about work and we're thinking, how can I do it? I can't cope. We actually recognize, hey, that is a lie. That is negativity. I'm ruminating. Actually, I'm going to catch that and I'm going to believe the scripture that says God's grace is sufficient for me. I have everything I need. I can do this. God is with me. Enough is enough. You know, when we're, when we're worrying about money and finance and we're ruminating, we recognize it, we catch it, we're aware of it, and we say, no, the, the word says that as I seek first the kingdom of God, he will add these things to me. That as I honor him and put him first in my life, he will provide all my needs. You know, when we're worrying about our family and our kids, we catch that and we recognize that God is their father, that God loves them more than us, that God has a plan for his life, that Jesus came to give life and life in abundance, and we put that down and we pick up God's word and we replace it with it. That is what we're told to do. But to do that, we actually need to know what the scripture says. We need to know the truth. It's one thing to spot a lie, but we need to know the truth to be able to replace it. You know, the opposite of rumination is meditation. Rumination is when we focus and we compulsively think about the negative, meditation is when we fix our thoughts on God's goodness and on his truth. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 4.8. He says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Basically, he's saying find something good to fix your eyes on. Focus on what you're thankful for. Keep that central focus and meditate on it. Sometimes when I've been depressed, I've been literally driving to work thanking God for traffic, that there's other people driving, thanking him for the grey clouds, thanking him for the traffic lights, because I need to fix my eyes on something that's good. I need to be thankful. I need to be anchored in that. You know, have you been ruminating or have you been meditating? 
Have you been, what is consuming your thought space? You know, it's a choice. Have I been ruminating or have I been meditating? And as someone that struggled with rumination, I've learned a few practical things that have helped over the years that I'd, I'd love to share with you. If you struggle to ruminate, if you struggle to put things down, a helpful tool can be to actually give yourself a time in the day when you're allowed to ruminate. Maybe it's after you put the kids down in the evening and you say, hey, from 7.30 to 8, I've got this time where I can process, where I can let it out, where I can pray about it, where I can talk about it. But once that clock hits 8, I'm not going there again until I get my time the next day. And it can just be helpful to box it in instead of having this constant cycle that's going throughout the day. You know, another strategy is to write it down. Sometimes when we're thinking and thinking, we just start to get confused. But writing things down can be an anchor to get it out, put it on paper, and then leave it there. You know, a a pastor that I really like, he has something called a God box. And if you're anything like me, you'll find yourself... Uh, anxious about something and you'll be praying to God and you'll say, Lord, I surrender it to you. I leave it at your feet. And then 30 seconds later, you've picked it back up and you're trying to solve it again. You haven't left it at God's feet. And so what this pastor does is he actually has a physical box, like a shoe box. And he, if he's stressed about something, he'll write it down. I'm stressed about my kids. And he'll hold on to that. He'll pray about it. I am putting this in your box, God. I'm going to shut that box, and it's a physical reminder that if he wants to think about that again, he's got to go and open that box up and hold on to it, because he's left it at God's feet. You know, it's something that can help us actually leave it there instead of constantly picking it back up. You know, let's all get a God box. And the final thing that can lead to depression that we learn from this passage, uh, if I could have the keys up, it's spiritual warfare. You know, I've shared a lot of practical things today that can help with depression. But the reality is, is that there is actually a spiritual reality. There are spiritual deities that look to oppress and that look to bring heaviness and depression. You know, in this passage, Elijah isn't only confronted with the person of Jezebel, he's confronted with the spirit of Jezebel. And the spirit of Jezebel looks to bring fear, it looks to bring intimidation, You'd see Elijah has a, has a threat given to him, but all of a sudden this is blowing out of such big proportion that this one threat, it's so intimidating, it's so real, it's so heavy that everything goes. It's because there's a spirit attached to it. It's the spirit of Jezebel. The Bible also talks about the spirit of fear that looks to paralyze and bring heaviness. It talks about, uh, it talks about the spirit of heaviness, and we're told to put on the garment of praise There are spiritual beings out there, and and trust me, I'm not someone that thinks there's a devil under every rock. I'm not. Sometimes we can think the devil's responsible for everything, that we get a flat tire, and we think a demon's come and popped a hole in our tire. No, we probably just hit a pothole, and we should write an email to Waka Kotahi maybe, but they probably won't do anything about it. Um, (laughs) I shouldn't be critical. Anyway, I don't think there's a devil under every rock, but I think it's often more spiritual than we think. I'm going to say that again. It's often more spiritual than we think. And often, so much of the time, we write off the spiritual, we go to all these practical things, and we don't get the results because we need a spiritual solution for a spiritual problem. You know, the spiritual and the practical are meant to go hand in hand. 
Yes, God gives us wisdom to, to, to live a wise life and we follow the scriptures, but we also recognize we're in a spiritual battle and we need to stand our ground and we need to use the weapons of our warfare, which is the word of God, which is praise, which is prayer, which is the blood of Jesus. We need to do these things hand in hand. You know, if I told you right here today that tonight someone was going to try to break into your house, they were going to try to steal as much as they could, they were going to try to kidnap your kids, and they were going to try to harm you. What would you do? You'd be waiting up, ready for that person to come, probably with a knife. This is what it says in 1 Peter 5, 8-9. Be alert and of sober mind, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's waiting. He's looking. We're told to be on guard. Then it says, resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. You know, we are not meant to fear the enemy, but we're meant to be aware. There is someone there that is looking to bring depression, that is looking to bring oppression. Someone is trying to look for a crack in your life to get in. But it says when we resist the devil, he flees. How do we resist him? The things that I've talked about, speaking out the word of God, having an environment of praise and worship, asking for prayer, being in community, pleading the blood of Jesus over your life and your house. That is how we resist him and he flees. So I just want to recap where we've been today. Today we've been having a conversation about depression and we've been studying the prophet Elijah and learning some of the causes that led him into the cave of depression and talking about how, like how we can identify these in our own lives. The first cause we looked at was lifestyle imbalance. First thing, is my lifestyle balanced? Better one handful, better a stripped back life with peace than chasing it all and having stress. The second cause was isolation and loneliness. Have I got people around me? Can I share with others when I need help? What is my tendency when I'm not feeling well? Don't isolate yourself. The third cause was comparison. Comparison will steal your joy. Remember Elijah said, I'm no better than my ancestors. He had the weight of the world on his shoulders, trying to prove, trying to be better than, and it produced shame. Don't compare yourself to others. Stay in your own lane. The fourth thing was rumination. You know, ruminating is repetitive thinking and dwelling on negativity. God wants us to replace that with meditation, being thankful, catching those thoughts and bringing in the truth. And it's okay to be real and to process and share what you're actually thinking. That's healthy. But rumination is when we keep going over it over and over and over again. It doesn't get better. It gets worse. And the final thing was spiritual warfare. It's more spiritual than you think. Don't write off the spiritual. It's more spiritual than you think. Take it hand in hand, the practical and the spiritual, and be on guard.